This teaching is brought to you by Christian Family Church International. It's good to be home. Welcome, everybody. Good to have you here. To all those of you that are here for the first time, been gone for a month. You miss your family when you've been gone for a month, man. Praise the Lord. And I'm so grateful to be given this opportunity. You know, God was generous to us. He chose us. We didn't choose him. He chose us. I'm so glad God chose me. How many of you are glad God chose you? Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I just want to pray and I want to thank Apostle Theo for the opportunity to minister to you this morning. So let's just pray and commit this time to the Lord. Father, we come before you this morning in the wonderful name of Jesus. We come to celebrate your life-giving word that informs us and transforms us more into the image and likeness of Jesus. This morning we pray, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. And all those who agreed said, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may take your seats. I heard an interesting story the other day about something that took place in a church in Benero Park some years ago. Some of you may have heard about it, but it was a first time for me. Um, one, of the, one of the parishioners, their members died. She was about 65 years old. And um, at the end of the funeral service, the pallbearers were carrying the coffin out and they bumped one of the pillars in the church here in Benero Park. And they heard this, Ooh, in the coffin. They opened the coffin and the wound was still alive. Can you believe it? She'd lived another 10 years. So anyway, 10 years later, which was recently now, they had the funeral again, and the pallbearers picked up the coffin and were making their way out the church, and the husband jumped up and he said, don't bump the pillar. <laughs> it's just a joke. It didn't happen in the church of Bidero Park. I'm just kidding. Okay. From the from that funny note onto a bit more, a bit more serious, the title of my message this morning is Faith Under Fire. Faith Under Fire. Can someone say that? Faith Under Fire. I want to give you a bit of a background before I begin to teach this morning, and so just bear with me. Pentecostal and charismatic churches, including Christian Family Church, have recently come under fire, not just by external critics, but within their own membership ranks as well. Although several claims have been leveled against us, that they're teaching or that we're teaching heresy regarding subjects like the infilling of the Holy Spirit, praying in tongues, and being slain in the Spirit, today, at Apostle Theo's request, I just want to touch on what I believe to be the main issue and the reason for these attacks against spiritual churches, including ourselves. I'd like to accomplish two things in the 30 minutes that I have this morning. Firstly, I would like to address the spirit and strategy being employed by some crusaders to criticize and discredit various Bible translations and then utilize that knowledge to sow doubt, strife, and division, inevitably doing far more harm than the good they'd initially hoped for. Secondly, I want to give you enough information to recognize half-truth and rhetoric and act on God's word that says have nothing to do with unedifying and stupid controversies. Furthermore, those who claim there is only one usable translation consider any ministry whose teachings are not solely based on the old King James Version as heretical and cultish. On that note of the King James Bible, which I love and do consider to be the most accurate translation, 
An interesting fact about the original King James Version is that although it is considered to be the most accurate, since it was first printed in 1611, many more manuscripts have been discovered. The Dead Sea Scrolls being one of those which were only discovered in 1946. If I have more time at the end of my message, we will take a closer look at that. So why do I deem this to be the most necessary issue to address, you may ask. Well, because the Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the enemy's tactic has not changed over the centuries. He is still a seed thief. Because he knows that if he can get a believer to doubt the integrity of the word of God that they hold in their hand, that has been passed down through centuries, he can corrupt or steal their faith. Which is one of the reasons why I believe Luke and Matthew record these specific statements by Jesus. The first one being in Luke chapter 18 and verse 8. Jesus says this. Now let me give you a bit of a, let me give you a bit of a context here. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story about the persistent widow who wanted justice from an unjust judge. Jesus says we as a church ought to learn from this unjust judge because initially he ignored her, but because of her persistent faith, claiming what she wanted, eventually the Bible says in the New Living Translation, she was driving him crazy, so he gave her what she wanted. And then the concluding statement that Jesus makes in that story is this, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth. Jesus is saying, will I find the persistent, robust, strong, and eternal faith in the hearts of believers when I come back? And the devil has launched an attack on the church and always has. He seeks to discredit the word of God all the time in order to steal people's faith, which makes Jesus' concern quite legitimate. Don't you think? The Bible says, Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? It's a question he poses. And then in Matthew chapter 24, verses 12 and 13, Jesus teaching about what the end of the time, what the, the end of the age will be like. He speaks about false prophets coming. He speaks about persecution, about being arrested. So it has to do with the last days. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 24, verses 12 and 13. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. And the one who endures bears up under trial and perseveres to the end, Jesus said, he will be saved. First of all, he says, the love of many will grow cold. Now watch this. Faith worketh by? Love. No, faith comes by hearing, but faith worketh by? Love. So faith must have a love foundation. That's what the Bible says. So he comes to attack he comes to attack the word to steal our faith, and then he tries to get Christians not to walk in love with one another. You see, sometimes we mean well, we just don't love well. So Jesus says, because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. Then he says, but the one who endures to the end, there is going to come a time. And I believe Jesus is coming back soon, that life is going to go from endearing to enduring. That's what Jesus himself said. Now, I know it's not a popular message and nobody's gonna jump up and say hoorah, but the truth of the matter is that, that life is gonna go from being endearing to being enduring. 
Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 20. Remember I said I want to accomplish two things. First of all, I want to address the spirit that I believe is behind these attacks. And let me also say this, we need to remind ourselves that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. The devil's our problem, not people. People submit to the devil, but we just take authority over him. So Jesus says this, he says, beware, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep. Notice he doesn't say they come disguised as shepherds. It's not just, it's not just popular preachers that we need to be concerned about. Jesus says over here, wolves come in and look like sheep. Sheep follow. They mix among you. You wouldn't know them. For a time they serve, for a time they look great, but there comes a time where, because their root base is corrupted, that a sheep becomes a ravenous wolf. And as the church, we need to be aware of this. And as I've been a pastor in this church for 30 years, I've been involved over here, I've seen many people come and go. It amazes me, not so much that sheep become ravenous wolves and are exposed, but what does amaze me is the amount of people that they manage to influence. That's why... I've prepared this message. So he says, beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really ravenous wolves. It's interesting that Jesus would use the word wolf. Why? Because wolves hunt in packs. They don't hunt alone. So the sheep becomes a wolf. Why? Because he reads an article on the internet or he gets sent some, some, some sort of crazy theology arguing or refuting the credibility of some of the Bible translations. And so what does Wolf do? Now he begins to gather a pack for himself. So they go to social media and they start, and they start baiting people. And then they write letters to Pastor Theo and Bev calling them, hey Theo, you've been teaching wrong. You need to hear what I'm saying. Hey Bev, you've missed this. <laughs> you will know them by their fruit. So it doesn't amaze me that people from in congregations begin to rise up and become critical. What concerns me is the amount of people that fall into that trap. And Jesus said it would happen. So this is cautionary from Jesus. He says, he says they are wolves. Be careful. Look at this in verse 16. He says, you can identify them by their fruit, not by their knowledge. He says, you, you don't need a degree to refute people's questions. You just need eyeballs. You see, I came to this church because of what apostasy taught. I stayed here because of who he is and the life he lives. I'm not going to be bamboozled by some woman whose husband, whose, whose marriage failed and children rejected them because she got into excess. And now she wants to begin to tell me that the NIV translation I've been reading from the beginning is actually from the devil. To insinuate... Because the first 12 years of my Christian walk, all I read was the NIV Tonsman's Chain Reference. It's the only Bible I had. Now, granted, I don't read it that much anymore, and I don't consider it to be a great study Bible. But Lord have mercy, for 12 years, that's all I read. To now insinuate that my foundation is on a demonic text, and who I've become in Christ is actually just a rouge. The mind boggles. Can I get an amen? amen? So Jesus says, you don't need a degree. He says, you will know them by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes? The Bible says if someone's root is corrupt and their tree has been corrupt, been corrupted, there is no way that they will ever be able to produce what is good until the root is reestablished in something else. And Ephesians tells us in the supplicative prayer that our roots must go deep down into the love of God. 
That's where our root base must be established, which is an unconditional love towards imperfect people. But people whose root base is established in something else will never, ever be able to produce bad, good fruit. Now, the good news is that if your, tree, if your root is based in Christ, you will not be able to produce bad fruit. You will only be able to produce good fruit. So Jesus says, before you allow someone to come in and begin to lead you, observe their life, not what they say. Because God is not as impressed by what we believe or what we know as what he is by how we do what we do with what we know. That's what Jesus says. So before anybody comes into your life and begins to try and sway you with theological rhetoric, the first thing you need to do is say, who's speaking to me? What is their background? What is their life like? And then say, okay, fine, you practice what you preach. But be careful because this is going to become rampant in the last days, folks. People rise up within the church and all of a sudden they begin to criticize a ministry that's been around for 40 years, saying things like, no, you've just produced false converts. Nobody you've ever led to the Lord is actually a true convert because you preach heresy. What a load of nonsense. And for those of you watching on Facebook Live from around the world, wherever you're watching from, um, just bear with me, but be, be careful of exactly the same thing. Be careful what you watch. Don't just let any junk come into you. So clearly over here it says that Jesus in verse 20, yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. We get criticized by people who don't lay hands on people, have never seen anyone healed, never seen anyone stain in the spirit, never seen anyone praying tongues, and very few of them have ever even led people to the Lord. Why? Because they spend their time criticizing ministries that are doing something. And are we perfect? Let me say this, we're not perfect. Pastor Theo's never claimed that we are perfect. No charismatic church is perfect. Why? Because it's filled with imperfect people. And we welcome imperfect people. Thank God, otherwise I would never have been saved. So what is the fruit of their theology producing? Is it producing condescension, patronizing superiority, strife, doubt, argument, division? Or does what they say produce harmony? and a coming together and a working of the body of Christ. Just watch the fruit. That's why Jesus says in James chapter 2 and verses 14 through 18, he says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can that faith save him? So what works is Jesus specifically referring to over here? He says in verse 15, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto him, Depart in peace, be he warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them, not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? The Lord is saying that our faith must be active in serving people, not trying to pull people out of church, but encourage people to go into church. And I'm saying to all those wolves out there, not here, all those wolves out there, why don't you start your own church with your theology and see how many people you get serving Jesus, but leave us alone. Can I get an amen? Can everybody say, leave us alone? Thank God. Forgive me, I'm slightly impassioned. Look at what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14. Paul, speaking to Timothy, who pastored the church of Ephesus, he says, remind them of these things. Who's them? They're the congregation members, right? So I'm reminding them today. He says, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words, 
to no profit to the ruin of hearers. He's saying, stop worrying about, in another word, in my, in my interpretation, stop worrying about words, stop worrying about interpretations. You're big enough, you can go to the original Greek if you want to, you can go to the Masoretic text, but stop criticizing and breaking down congregations because the pastor used an NIV translation scripture for one of the verses. Give me a break, give me a break. They're bigger fish to fry. He says, not strife and no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Now, this is so important. And this really is a key to remaining free from deception. He says, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I put this quote in here by Derek Prince, and I do believe it's behind me, because I think it sums up verse 15 so beautifully and gets to the essence of what the scripture is trying to tell us. He says this, it is critical to have your own personal relationship with God, not just rely on what someone else has told you or what you've read in a book or even what you've heard in church. All that may be good, but it's not sufficient. There must come a time when you've seen God for yourself, when you've come to know him firsthand. Because that is the only sure way of being protected against deception. And if someone inboxes you trying to expose the heresy that's being taught, just, you know what, just say, Lord, what's this about? If it begins to, if you know Jesus well enough, straight away, you'll be able to recognize what's nonsense. What's words? What has substance? He says this in verse 16. He says, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. We've had people rise up within the church and go and start their own churches in the past because of a different doctrine, whatever it may be. And you know what? Very, very seldom do any of them succeed. In actual fact, you go back two years later and not, not only does that ministry not exist and that theology not exist, but the people that left and went with them are all dead in the spirit and gone. They're not even serving God anymore. If only those people that led the people astray would come up and acknowledge their fault and say, Father, forgive me, but none of them ever have. And you know, David killed the lion and the bear to spare his sheep. As a ministry, I do believe we have to defend our sheep. Trust in the Holy Spirit to do what he does, but bring to the ministry's attention, to the church's attention. Whenever we find a wolf in sheep's clothing, having penetrated our ranks, we go wolf. Not we love the wolf and stroke the wolf while it eats everybody else. The Bible says it's a cancer. We'll get to that scripture in a moment. If you can't pray and get healing for cancer, you cut it out. Very harsh, I know. I might have to apologize at the end of this message, but please forgive me, I'm a bit impassioned. He says, but shun profane babblings, for they will increase more to more ungodliness. Look at this in verse 17. And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of the sort. Paul holds nothing back. He even mentions their names, and I could mention names, but I won't. Because I'm feeling a bit more spiritual than Paul was at that point in time. But no, I'm Paul, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. But notice he even mentions their name. He says, their message will spread like cancer. What does cancer do? Cancer has to be in the body in order to be cancer. It starts from in the body, which means that people within our ranks eventually become infected. And then what happens is, if it's not treated or diagnosed immediately, metastasis begins to take place. That cancer begins to spread from cell 
to sell, to sell, to sell. And many cases, cancers become growths that are completely apart from the body, but suck the life out of the body. That's why we trust God for healing from cancer, not to have the cancer and the body work together. We trust God for healing. Either that or we cut it out. I'm not going to belabor that point. I'm just going to leave that right there. He says this, he says, for they will increase to more ungodliness and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of that sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying the resurrection is already past. So these two guys infiltrated a congregation and they began to suck the hope out of the people. They said this, the resurrection, the thing that Jesus promised was gonna happen has already happened, it's not applicable to you. I recently heard an argument, a woman's husband has now got into some doctrine where he states all the promises in the Bible are for Israel, not for the church. They've already been fulfilled. How is that different to what these two guys were doing? They sucked the hope out of people to say, listen, God promised he'd come back. Don't worry, that's already happened. And look what it says. Notice very carefully what it says. It says, and they overthrow the faith of some. This corrupt message actually did cause them to overthrow the faith of well-intentioned, well-meaning Christians because they bought into the lie. On that note, the promises of God are yea and amen. And I claim all 7,000 of them for myself. And if I'm not sure, I'll claim them anyway. And he says, they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord, look at this again, the Lord knows those who are his. He's saying personal relationship, intimate walk with Jesus, even though you don't know the answers, will protect you from going into deception. Just follow after the Lord. You don't need a theological degree. You don't need Bible college. Actually, you need, you need Bible college. Back then, they didn't have Bible college. Otherwise, the Lord would have said, observe them by their fruits and attend Christian Family Church International Bible College. But it wasn't around back then. So we're in the time of enrolling now. I want to encourage you to enroll. <laughs> so over here, Jesus closes off by saying, or Paul closes off by Timothy and telling him to encourage the people to know God for yourself. That's growth track one, step one starts today. It's all about knowing God. That's what it's about. Growth track step one is all about knowing God. I would encourage you, if you haven't done step one, please go to growth track. It's one hour of your time directly after the service. On the 7th of December, we're actually doing all four tracks, all four steps in one day. So I want to encourage you to go there. But in the face of this encouragement here by Jesus and by Paul, let's get to know God a bit better. Can I get an amen? Moving on to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Look at what he says. Continue on. He says, but refuse. Shut your mind against and have nothing to do with trifling, ill-informed, unedifying, stupid controversies over ignorant questionings, for you know that they foster strife and breed quarrels. So if what is being proposed, if what is being suggested, if what is trying to be forced down through social media is causing Christians to 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 get in strife and quarrel with one another. Just remove yourself from it. It's, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. That's what he says. So now getting onto the subject of words and arguments, 
I'd like to just deal with Bible translations for a moment, and I would encourage you to download the notes because I've included all of this, all these details in the notes for you, and even a link um, for you to, to get some to get some more information. So if you don't have that, get the app, download this. So there are three categories of translations of the Bible. The first category is what is called formal or literal equivalence. This is word for word. King James, New King James translation would be an example of what is a formal or literal equivalence. And this is best for accuracy, okay? Secondly, you get what is called dynamic equivalence. And this is thought for thought. This is where they take in a bit more the cultural context to try and make it more readable. And it's about readability. The New Living Translation would be an example of a contemporary English version would be an example of, of, of a dynamic equivalence. Then you get optimal equivalence. Why optimal? Because optimal is a combination of both of the above, of formal and dynamic equivalence. An example of this would be the NIV and the Christian Standard Bible. And then finally, you get the paraphrases. Paraphrases fall into the category of dynamic equivalence, which is thought for thought by definition. However, they are far more focused on readability than any of the others. And the message translation would be an example of this. I don't study with the message. I don't study with the NIV. I study with my Greek and my Hebrew, and I study with my King James Version or the New King James Version. But my encouragement to each and every one of you is this, that everyone should have a word-for-word -word translation and a thought-for-thought -thought translation. Remembering very well that if you ever have a question, you can always go directly to the Greek and directly to the Hebrew if need be, which makes all this argument about which Bible translation is the best completely mute. So I recommend that everyone has a word-for-word -word translation and a thought-for-thought -thought translation. So there will be a slight difference in translations based upon two main points. Two main points will, 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 um, is where you'll pick up the slight differences. First and foremost, let me just say that the New Testament text types of manuscripts are used. That's the first point. What New Testament text types were used? And there were two for the New Testament. The Old Testament is not in question because the Old Testament in all translations, all major translations, uses the Masoretic text. The more contentious issue comes when it comes to the New Testament. So there are two types of manuscripts that were used, either the Alexandrian text type or the Byzantine or what is called the majority text type. And that was where that came out of Antioch. So that's the first, that's the first point. The second point is the type of translation. Notwithstanding which translation is used, it should be noted that every good edition should provide the necessary notes within it in the comments or the footnotes relating to which text it is based on, whether it be the Alexandrian text or the Byzantine text. There are no conspiracies or collusions. There are just different categories of translations of different text types of groups and groupings in manuscripts. Let me give you an example. I love, I love Romans chapter 7 in the message translation. It is amazing. You know where Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do. That which I do want to do, I don't end up doing. Oh, who will save me from this body of death? You read them. You read the message translation of that. It just makes it so clear and so beautiful. But I don't use that as a point of reference. I go straight to the old King James and compare the two. We are Bible students, aren't we? 
We want to know the truth. And we're clever enough not to base our theology on one translation of the Bible because we understand that not to be correct. So what do I do, Pastor Andre, when two Bible translations don't agree? Which one is right? Pretty good question. I've included the link to a great blog that can answer that question. I don't have the time and fortune to do it today, but if ever you found either an apparent contradiction between two translations, which one is the best one to choose? There really is a phenomenal blog, um, and it's, uh, it's at logos.com. It's in your notes over there. You can click on that, print it out, and it really will help you answer that question quite conclusively. And then in verse 24, let's get back to scriptures as I close. In verse 24, it says this, and the servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome. I want to close in dealing with how objections should be dealt amongst believers. If we don't agree, and let me tell you, I've got some great friends that don't believe exactly the same way I believe, but we can still get along. We can still love each other and move along because God has not called us to the unity of doctrine. He's called us to the unity of faith. And if they believe that Jesus died for their sins and through his blood bought our salvation, listen, that's good enough for us to walk together and stay together. Regardless, if they disagree with me, I don't go become a crusade and say, I'm going to destroy your church and steal your members because you're teaching them heresy. This whole idea that you cannot lose your salvation. Die. We just disagree and we move on and we walk in love. And it says here in verse 24, and the servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, fighting and contending. Instead, he must be kindly to everyone, even those who don't agree with you. And mild-tempered, persevering the bond of peace. Sorry, preserving the bond of peace. Sometimes it is persevering. Preserving the bond of peace. He must be skilled and a suitable teacher, patient and forbearing and willing to suffer wrong. My concluding statement is something I said earlier on in my message, and that is this. That oftentimes people mean well. They just don't love well. Let us make sure that we love well. Because if we do that, people will see past everything else. Thank you for joining us during this episode of Living Life with Dr. Theo and Bev Volmerantz. We hope that through this inspired teaching, you had an encounter with God. If you enjoy the teaching ministry of Apostle Theo and Dr. Bev Volmerantz and would like to enjoy more resources, we hope you will visit our website at www.christianfamilychurch.co.za or for our American listeners, www.christianfamilychurchsa.com.